Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey everyone, welcome to part two of our interview with the incredible author, Sarah Graham. This episode is all about the gender health gap. And there was so much to say that we split it into two episodes. So if you haven't listened to part one, then please jump into that first as it gives you a great introduction to the topic and explains why this is so important. So without further ado, let's head into part two. I feel like you're a real advocate and a voice for this whole revolution thank you yeah I mean I I feel a bit sort of imposter syndrome almost when when you say that you know and one of the things that I've said a lot as I've been kind of going around talking about this book is you know there are more than 140 different people's voices in this book and I feel like in lots of ways I'm the least important and the least interesting you know I'm very much there to document what is going on I don't feel like it is my revolution I feel like I'm just here kind of giving a voice to to the the people that are doing the real work um you know and I I feel so privileged that so many of them have trusted me to tell those stories and you know some of the things that some of those conversations some of those interviews have been so harrowing and so personal and and difficult you know there have been people I've interviewed where we've kind of both come away from them in tears and I you know I feel that it's such a privilege to be able to share those stories um, and and to give a voice to those experiences that otherwise are not heard. And something that you touched on in the book, again, going back to the intersectionality, is that actually we're all working towards the same cause. So I think even though um, you don't feel like they're your stories to tell, I think it takes an objective person to bring the different threads together of all the different stories because you cover everything from race to transgender to disability and they're all such important issues. But what's the saying? We're we're greater than the sum of our parts and I think it's so true. We're all faced with the same issues. So actually bringing them all together and and fighting for the same cause is is so much better than doing it separately. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one one of the things I was very conscious about as I was writing the book is you know, a lot of what I have read previously about the gender health gap has been written from a much more personal perspective. You know, there have been a lot of books in the last few years about endometriosis, about other kind of chronic conditions that have come very much from the writer's personal perspective and the, and then gone outwards from that. And whereas as a journalist, I think I'm much more, I'm, I'm very interested in kind of the bigger picture. And I was very conscious that um 
you know, these conversations tend to be very white, tend to be very middle class, which is exactly what I am, you know, um, and I didn't want it to be more white middle class ramblings about periods and the menopause and it, there is you know there's been some fantastic work done by white middle class women but I wanted it to look wider than that and I felt that as you say you know having that kind of journalistic distance from it I suppose allowed me um to 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 look at, at those kind of bigger picture issues mm. and it was something I was really conscious of of wanting to do well and I was very very concerned with it, getting it right I suppose that felt like a huge responsibility um you know to particularly with trans people who have been so demonized I think in in the media in the last few years it felt like a huge responsibility to tell those stories in a way that was compassionate and that that really gave a voice to those experiences that are so often just shouted over by people that don't have any skin in the game and you've done a fantastic job of that thank you it, it, I think it's just your, the journey that you've gone through through writing this book sounds absolutely incredible and we're nowhere near that journey but I feel like in part doing this podcast we've been able to talk to such incredible people and we're I mean we don't know anything about healthcare and we're learning as we go and it's as you say learning from all these different experts and learning from people like you who have been through this journey I think it's really exciting and I think that's actually such a good point because the the premise of our podcast is that we speak to experts about healthcare issues but I think this episode has really highlighted that the stories of the people who are suffering are just as important as the experts the experts are great to get to know how to deal with something but actually as you say when you go into a GP surgery your story matters just as much as the expert in the room as well so I think that's actually a really nice way to you know round off our series basically yeah yeah and then maybe we get some people on to share their stories yes yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I feel really passionate about and the reason that I wanted to have healthcare professionals included was that actually this should be a partnership. The relationship between doctors and patients needs to be a dialogue, not a dictatorship, mm. um, you know, because you both have your own particular set of expertise and th those work so much better together than when they're kind of in conflict with one another. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. I'm so fascinated as to where the NHS is going to go and how we're going to get out of this. Slightly terrifying. <laughs> place. I feel like it's just going to be privatised. And I'm, I'm, I think it's going that way, isn't it? It's, I think it's already been privatised partially, but it's terrifying. You never know. There might be new government next year. Yeah. New direction. One can hope. I came back from Australia being like, yes, we've got the NHS. <laughs> After like four months, I was like, oh God, <laughs> we've got the NHS. <laughs> And also you speak about the sexism that female doctors and nurses face as well, which is just reason 5,000 to leave the NHS when you're being faced with that as well and not working in a good work environment. Yeah. I mean, there was a report out, I can't remember if it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, um, by the Royal College of Surgeons about the amount of sexual assault I that surgeons this. experience while they're in surgery, operating what? on people, you know, being sexually assaulted by their colleagues. And it's just... You know, you <laughs> you think you've heard it all, and I, you know, I often kind of joke about being completely unshockable because I've heard so many really shocking stories. But some of the statistics in that report were just jaw dropping. Um, there's an amazing organisation actually called uh, Surviving in Scrubs, which was set up by two female doctors to highlight the the levels of um, sexual harassment, sexual abuse that that 
female doctors are experiencing and they have collected just you know in a similar sort of way to hysterical women really shocking stories mm. um, of women's experiences that is awful and in such a high pressure job having to do that and getting I just can't and not being paid very well not that you yeah. can be paid to be sexually assaulted yeah. but you know what I mean like yeah. all of that stuff against you it, oh it would drive anyone away yeah and you know I think surgery in particular very much has that reputation of being super macho women are um you know dissuaded from pursuing surgery as a specialism because um you know it's seen as not being very family friendly and it's not a it's not an area for women and oh wouldn't you rather be a gp instead and mm. i think so many of those attitudes that still exist in in terms of that kind of career progression and and the specialisms that that women choose to go down as well that's such a good point, actually, because the hours are awful for surgery and must be so much harder to look after a child and, and balance everything with the lack of flexibility. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think hospital medicine in general is is really antisocial. You know, working 12-hour shifts mm. is, is not compatible with with family life or yeah any any kind of life social life you know getting a decent night's sleep (laughs) exactly but yeah going back to the surgery thing did you see the stat recently that you're less likely to suffer from complications from a female surgeon they're more precise they're essentially better at what they do in many cases but yeah it's not a female profession yes it's crazy isn't it absolutely it always just reminds me of scrubs when it was really that like boys club yeah that's how I see the surgeons yeah 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 you know and I think you know obviously medicine is becoming more diverse there is a much more equal gender split in terms of of who is going into medicine at a medical school level but I think absolutely there are certain areas that are still very much that boys club and also you know when you look at kind of the the different levels you know the the bottom rungs of medicine is is full of um you know racial diversity full of women full of you know it it looks like a very diverse workforce when you get up to the more senior positions it's very white it's very male still and that is that's the problem not to mention the management which is probably even worse the people making decisions absolutely terrifying you know and you mentioned in the book as well about um cultural differences and doctors not knowing how to speak to different people from different cultural backgrounds which is obviously an issue as well as you climb the the medical ladder that there are different um idiosyncrasies i guess that doctors don't know how to address when they're speaking to possibly south asian women about periods and sex and you know all these different cultural backgrounds I just thought that was really fascinating and not something as a white woman I've ever thought about before yeah absolutely and I think again it comes down to you know fundamentally who is sitting around the table making those decisions in terms of commissioning in terms of really fundamentally like who is important in it within your kind of patient population and you know is it worth doing the diversity and cultural sensitivity training and do you know do we bother commissioning services that do specific outreach to particular groups or do we just label them as hard to reach and write them off without ever actually making any effort you know I think that that whole issue of who is prioritized and who isn't is so is is such a big deal um 
and and a lot of that is down to who's sitting around the table making those decisions and who you know like you say if you don't have that life experience it's not even necessarily malicious it's just you literally don't think about it um you know so one of the doctors that i interviewed was a gp called dr hannah Barron brown and she spoke about the fact that disabled women are just not considered you know things like access to sexual health services she'd been to a clinic herself as a patient that was up a flight of stairs and she couldn't she, there was no lift she couldn't get up there in her wheelchair and she said it, it just felt like there was this attitude that oh well disabled women don't have sex so they don't need sexual health clinics um you know but but the thing that she said was you know so often it is not malicious it just hasn't been thought of because the people sitting around the table have never needed to think about you know wheelchair access to sexual health clinics or what it's like to be a black trans person trying to access healthcare or what it's like to be south asian or you know so so many of these things and and so many of these groups that are so often dismissed as being hard to reach actually it's just because they don't you know the the services are not accessible to them in in whatever way they need to be yeah absolutely gosh that's so really a top down issue totally totally and i you know i think trust is is another huge thing where if you don't see yourself represented um, in the health service and if you have repeatedly experienced being let down, feeling let down, seeing other members of your family or other members of your community being let down, I think that trust, you know, it, it goes both ways. Um, and I think there are real issues with particular communities, particularly kind of ethnic minority communities, feeling that actually the health service is just not for them. Yeah, absolutely. Sad. And I think the only way that we can try and change the people in power or the doctors thinking about this is just having conversations about it and making people, because as you say, a lot of the time it's not malicious. It's just people aren't aware that people with different backgrounds maybe find something taboo or wouldn't come to you openly about this health issue and i think these conversations are just so incredibly important how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One thing I really loved about um, the first page of your book is when you talk about uh, raising consciousness. Mm. Is that what the term is? Yeah, consciousness raising. That's it, yeah. And I'd never thought of that again in a term before, but just actually how important it is to have people sitting around a table talking about things so you realise you're not alone that you can change something if you're a doctor listening to this you might educate yourself on a certain topic a little bit more and I I just think these conversations are so powerful and have such a big part to play in this and I think the really key thing is not just having the conversations but actually really really listening you know because it's so easy to you know invite one disabled person one black person one Asian person to sit around a table and talk about the issues that their community might be facing but unless you're actually really listening and taking that on board and doing and, and actioning it, um, you know, and, and also speaking to more than one of each of these particular members of these communities, um, you know, what's the point? Otherwise, it's just a tick box exercise. It's a really good point. I think it's just so interesting hearing those facts being like, you, how can we deny this now? You've got to do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the combination of the numbers, but then giving the kind of human voice to those numbers is where it really kind of hits home. Um, You know, it's one thing to know, for example, that one in 10 uh, women and people assigned female at birth has endometriosis, but what does that actually mean? What is the impact on their life, you know? And so those... That's why those stories are so important alongside the numbers. The numbers in themselves are really shocking, but what does it mean for people's lives? And and for the economy, you know, workplaces and people being shut out of employment and people's family lives and, and it, it just impacts on everything. Health impacts on every single aspect of our lives. And um, that, I think, is is what's so easy to forget when you kind of look at these issues in isolation. I can't believe that one in 10, because so many of my friends have endometriosis. And as you say, their their stories have never really been Mm. heard. And the idea of them hearing other people talking about it is so lovely that it actually makes you feel far less alone. And that it it is an issue, not just your personal thing that you're going through and not just overthinking the pain. I didn't even really know about it until this year. I'd heard of it but I didn't know what it physically Mm. was that there's tissue outside of your womb but I had no idea about what it was I thought it was just some sort of woman's problem (laughs) it was very much characterized that I didn't know what it actually means and as soon as I found out I was like wow that is a not that I didn't believe it before but that is a real medical I was I was sort of I I guess I had internalized misogyny where I did just think it's a woman's problem that is pain 
I don't have it. Yeah. Whereas yeah. when you find out about it, you're like, oh my God, it's it's so real, which it makes me sound terrible. But I think a lot of people have come from the same places where I've come from, which yeah, all so got this internalized misogyny. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think endometriosis is an interesting kind of example of a condition where it, you know, it's it's benefited in lots of ways from a, a really successful awareness raising campaign in the last few years, led very much by patient advocates, charities, organisations working in this sector. Um, but as you say, it's it's still not well well enough known about. We still don't know what causes it. There is no cure. You know, the treatments are not perfect by by any stretch. You know. Even the kind of gold standard treatment, people have to have it over and over and over again because it stops working. You know, it doesn't stop working, but the endometriosis comes back after a while. Um, and then, you know, there are other conditions that I think are even more neglected. So things like fibroids, for example, affects even more women, but, you know, is even less heard about, less well understood. Um yeah, there's, it's just, uh, yeah, it, we're kind of only really just starting to scratch the surface, I think, with, with awareness about these issues. Mm. Gosh, yeah, fibroids, I don't really know anything about. And really? and you're right, the only way I've heard about these things is through friends talking about it. And I think only recently friends are actually, when you go to a girls' night, they're not talking about like going out partying. They're like, actually, I really want to talk to you about this. <laughs> yeah, This is really horrible. I've like, been so suffering true. for years. So but that's the only way you hear about them unless it's advocacy groups. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think social media has been really powerful in terms of making people feel less alone and empowering people to open up. One of the things I'm always really struck by is, you know, when I talk about a particular issue, um, or, or when other people online talk about a particular issue, you see this kind of like snowball effect of women who have bottled stuff up for years and years, kept it to themselves, felt like there was something wrong with them, and they've just kind of internalized all of that shame and stigma. It just all kind of comes rushing out. And I think it's such a cathartic experience to have kind of one person be brave enough to put their head above the parapet and go, I'm really struggling with this, that then everybody kind of feels that, the, you know, that you see that amazing outpouring. And that, I think, is one of the most powerful things that I've experienced in my work is, you know, even at the, some of the events I've been doing this year where women have come up to me at the end and just wanted to to kind of offload almost about what they've been going through. Um, I think that is, as you say, such a such a powerful thing. <laughs> I am now the, the friend in my friendship group where people text me and go, I've got this weird question about my vagina. <laughs> Do you know what this We all be? want a friend like that. <laughs> you know, and I'm always like, look, I'm not a doctor, but... <laughs> it might be this. <laughs> it might be this. You know, speak to your GP, um, but also hear a few resources that might be worth having a look at. Oh my um, goodness. Gosh, honestly, we're going to be texting you. <laughs> yeah, You're going to regret yeah. this. I've got this thing. I got this thing going on. <laughs> but I think I think you're so right. Online communities have just changed everything. TikTok has changed everything, yeah. and obviously that can lead to oh, people diagnosing themselves and you know Doctor Google and all of that. But I think it's just it's been so crucial. And for me, especially with my Ellis Danos, and it, on the side I've got POTS as well, which comes hand in hand with it. I had just given up because my list of ailments was so long and I was just thought, it's just my body. My body's weird. I get bruises. I have IBS, like all these different things. I get dizzy when I stand up. 
Um, and it was only through, I think it might have even been TikTok in during COVID that someone actually listed the symptoms of Ehlers Danos. And I was like, oh, wow, I don't just have a body that's got 20 things wrong with it. I've got one thing wrong with it. And it's all part of this list. And I think that it's just been revolutionary for me to listen to other yeah, people. And Absolutely. I think Ellis Danos is a really interesting example of one of the very big problems with the NHS, which is that everything is so kind of siloed. We don't have a holistic approach to health. And so with Ellis Danos, you hear time and time again, exactly like you said, people being sent to one specialist for this issue and another specialist for this issue. And they're only looking at their kind of very narrow area of expertise. So they're not connecting the dots. Um, and actually, it's kind of left to the GP to connect those dots. Um you know the the I don't know if you've come across it, but the kind of the phrase that is um, taught to GPs now um, by people that are doing kind of awareness raising around Ellis is if you can't connect the issues, think connective tissues, because of because yeah. of exactly what you're describing. You know that there are so many kind of disconnected symptoms that seem completely unrelated to each other. Um, so yeah, there's a, a, one of the women I interviewed recently for the article I mentioned. Uh, wrote the Ellis Danlos syndrome GP toolkit, um, which is all around kind of um, trying to to increase awareness among GPs because it is such an underdiagnosed condition. Um, and you know, she very strongly she has Ellis Danlos syndrome herself. She very strongly believes that it is much much more common than we think. Um, so yeah. Yeah, fascinating I thought it was one of those syndromes that was like one percent of people totally yeah and thinking about it I think my family had it too um maybe my mom possibly my dad and it's but for them they yeah. just don't think about it yeah. they wouldn't they wouldn't assess it in the same way that I feel comfortable doing so yeah. because of their generation and I, yeah I do think there is a generational thing that we are much more aware of our health and much more comfortable talking about these issues um and that, you know that has to be a positive if it if it means that people start getting help for things that for generations have just gone ignored and undiagnosed and untreated absolutely brings a revolution totally it, does. <laughs> it literally does <laughs> yeah no, absolutely you know that's one of the things that's so important about the changes to sexual um sex relationships and health education so they are now mandatory um in schools and there's a bit of a weird review thing going on at the moment, but but one of the really important things, A, is that it's mandatory, but B, that it has to now include periods and the menopause. Um, and I believe that has to be taught to all children. Um, it's not perfect because it's, it's, it's completely unprescriptive about how those things are taught. So it leaves a lot of room for variation and what teachers are comfortable talking about and how much they go into um but that you know feels like such an important step forward you know because boys are gonna have mothers and sisters and partners and wives and colleagues who go through this even if it doesn't affect them directly yeah, yeah. half the population goes through it so exactly. it's gonna affect them in some, yeah. one way or another you yeah. know and I, and I even feel like it, as a teenager I would have been perhaps more understanding of some of the things that my mum was going through yeah it feels yeah. So bad um, I was a totally. <laughs> yeah I give her any credit and I remember people just taking the piss out of their mums going through menopause yeah. all the time and just being like oh, she's gone a bit crazy yeah. and everything like that was flush yeah exactly without no idea of the real impact that has on someone there's so much yeah. more that needs to be done 
And I know we keep going back to endometriosis, but lots of my guy friends now have been like, I really want to learn about it because Mm. my girlfriend's having a really hard time. Or my sister's having a really hard time or friends. And actually for them to be able to educate themselves in it and to be able to be supportive to the females in their life, I think makes such a big difference. Totally. Totally. We need more men in the conversation. Otherwise it can't really go anywhere. And it's always such a huge gripe of mine that women seem to care a lot about men's issues and advocate on behalf of men, but it's not always reciprocated. And you obviously get, you get amazing men. You get some really great guys, but generally speaking, the by and large, it's not always reciprocated. So it's trying to get, people to men to care about it and I think one way to do that is as we spoke about the figures and mm. uh, annoyingly economic impact yeah absolutely yeah you know and that, that's one of the things that I say in the book you know is even if you do not care whatsoever about the women in your life their quality of life what they're going through you know from a purely financial perspective the government should care about this huge false economy where you're you know people are not in the workforce because of chronic illnesses where you know you're losing working days to the menopause you are storing up problems for the future because people are being diagnosed so much later than they could have been and therefore their problems are so much worse and more expensive to treat you know so early diagnosis people getting the treatment they need as soon as as soon as possible actually would save the NHS so much money in the long run and I think that's been a lot of the reason for whole countries changing their education strategy for girls because they see how much GDP they're missing out on basically from not educating girls in their country so it does work we need to keep on pushing that agenda thank you so much I've really loved chatting to you and yeah can we just do this every week (laughs) yeah (laughs) no no it's been it's been my pleasure I've absolutely up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.